Just past 18 hours, 29 minutes and 48 seconds, East African time. Time for John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. This being Wednesday, the 12th of October, 2022. Hello and welcome. Good people. Let's stick to the theme of research-based knowledge. For this edition, I was put in mind of a rather strident address, now in the public domain, which former Chief Justice Willy Mutunga first gave to a university gathering some years ago. In it, he recalled a time in our history when the political persecution of thought was vile and vicious. He urged universities, lecturers and students alike to reclaim their true heritage as sites for the contestation of ideas and thoughts. How do we enrich the country's jurisprudence or even policy outlook, he asked, if the people who have been commanded to think and are paid to think are reluctant to think? C.J. Willimutunga urged the university community to take up its historical mission. The university is not just a fountain of knowledge, he said, but also a spring for progressive politics. In order to live up to the commands of the Constitution, we need to go back to recognizing the role of the university in democratic development. Well, I met our guest a mystery to begin with, as you know, yesterday at a book launch. As one of two chief editors, he had already availed me the manuscript of the book in question, Decentralization and Inclusion in Kenya, from pre-colonial times to the first decade of devolution. And you've guessed it, it came from a newly founded university press. Hooray! Professor, where to begin? Are the days of a muzzled university, a muzzled academia, well and truly over? Tough question, as usual, <laughs> from you. Um, if you look at muzzling as uh, physical um, in terms of uh, an academic being taken to jail, then the days are over in my view. But if you look at the muzzling as much more spiritual, deeper than physical, then those days are here with us. Maybe I can explain. Um, first is the nature of the universities themselves, as we have them in Kenya at the moment. Um, most of the university would be funded by either government, um, church or mosque, and uh, sometimes business. If you study our universities, they fall into those three categories. That means that uh, if you are in a Muslim university teaching, you must be sensitive to their religion. Um, they might not tell you, but you have to be careful to know what to say and what not to say. 
uh, yet sometimes ideas um, do not sit very well with the sponsors. I think that would be the main one for me. The second ones will be spiritual, like I said. One is um, something that could have come naturally or something that could have been precipitated, uh, precipitated by earlier, earlier governments or policies. And it is this, that academics simply don't have the attitude of an academic, as Willie said. So you are in a university somewhere, um, you have to pick a lot of things in town, so you are gigging. Eh? This is one gig. You know, do one gig, run to the next. One gig, run to the next. Uh, to meet your economic needs. Um, I don't know the source of that. Professor, perhaps mm. you would be the ideal person to take us back down historical lane to that period when there was a great fear of physical suffering as an intellectual. Would you like to evoke that period? Because it falls within the ambit of your own research. Remind the young who constantly need reminding that there was a once a time when what happened? There was once a time when um, ideas were dangerous. Um, if you spoke or wrote ideas that certain people didn't like, usually in government, then very likely you could have gone missing. Um, very easily you would be picked probably by a military police helicopter. That would have been the last, Land Rover, and that would be the last of you. Um, I'm glad that you began by reading an excerpt uh, from the speech that uh, Professor William Tunga gave. Um, he himself was a victim of that. Um, because I, th I think this is now open, open history. Willie wanted to be an academic. He wasn't led to sit in the university. Um, he ended up in prison and all those. I think the rest of the story is known. Our heroes, um, the likes of uh, Professor Ngugiwa Thiongo, were teaching at the University of Nairobi Literature, Literature Department, I believe, at that point. Then they became, became dangerous by writing a play that is not very dangerous enough, but taking it to the villages. Well, it, it's worth saying that that particular yeah. play in Gai Kadeda, I don't know, Mikey Kui is improving by the day, yeah. but I Will Marry When I Want mm. is actually enjoying a revival and re-revival even as we speak. And um, it's interesting to actually go, I've seen it in Kikuyu and in English, it's interesting to see how far we've moved. And in that case, I'm very positive because as a playwright myself, I was watching I Will Marry When I Want, and I'm saying, lucky me to have been born, you know, 20 years later, because it seems to me that some of the themes that I am treating would have gone very down very badly. Uh, and of course, uh, we I can go back historically and remember Ngugi Wadiongo as my lecturer in the in the literature department all the way, you know, year one, 1973. And yes, we saw all those nasty things happening to him, to Michelle Mugo and the like. So we have moved on. So even as part of our conversation, we can say that things are getting better. Would you agree? Better, I think I go back to the earlier statement, better physically. Better physically. But, but remember... But the spiritual, the spiritual lack is owed to the individual himself. You see, if, if I'm not chaining you, uh, if the days of slavery are over, do you, you prefer to be gigging, those, those chains are self-imposed, Professor, wouldn't you say? 
In other words, there's a there's a there's a lack of there's a lack of vocation. If you if you decide to become a priest and you're to to win souls to Christ or uh, uh, I don't know, that's your job. So you're saying maybe the malaise of the current moment is that there isn't enough incentive to inspire our intellectuals to feel affirmed. I, I think so, and and I think the the people that were muzzling physically must be sitting pretty happy right now, because they don't have to do that. Um, they managed to to plant a seed of uh, greed among our people, not just academics, all our people, and everyone wants money, and in plenty. The university won't give you the money, so what do you do to look like the people walking in four by fours? You have to gig, you go around. But that's not uh, and, but that's and, not and germane to Kenya alone. In <laughs> studying world affairs, I yes, see that yes. um, magistrates in the UK are saying, you know, they're so poorly paid that they might as well become waiters instead. Um, so it is universal in the sense that the idea in the bad old days or the good old days when being a doctor or a, a lawyer was or a professor was a passport to riches in itself. But now you probably have to be a professor of gaming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think they get it wrong. Um, a professor will give you a livelihood. A professor, you will feed your family. They'll go to school, and I think that's important in my view. But it won't make you uh, F- Forbes fifty, for example. You won't get there. And I think that's the kind of education we need among our people. Uh, that we all can't be in Forbes fifty, and if we want to, then we have to go maybe start. A t- tech company that takes off, I think, but not in a university. Professor, I just sort of, uh, every other, when I look at the papers on a daily basis, every other person of a certain height is either a doctor or a professor. There are many doctors, uh, academic doctors, and many, many, many professors walking around. Is that substituted or mirrored in the fact that we afford a level of education that would be considered world-class and that our doctors and professor would stand the light, the spotlight in any academic community? We, we have, I believe, a fantastic education system and our graduates do very well in the world. Um, and anybody that has gone to school beyond Kenya will tell you that they didn't struggle to be among the top in the universities they went to abroad or overseas. Um, we are able to get the degrees and be doctors, be professors, and come back. The problem um, um, is that um, you have a professor then that is not publishing or researching. You are a professor that um, has no ideas to talk about. And so the person is a professor only in title. I think that's the problem. And that is how they won the battle. They got us to keep the spot, to keep the offices and positions, but without the values that go with those positions. So should you be instituting a sort of a professorial oath, like a medical oath, saying, I will go in this to spread knowledge wherever it is found? What's the solution? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Professor, you've just said, you know, things could be better. In, in what way? Oaths oath don't work that magic. Um, I, I know of a university my friend is graduating from where they even give you a sword. Yes. To cut around, you know. <laughs> yes. But that doesn't really help an African. I think what we need is return honor is to return uh, dignity, to return uh, higher values, the spiritual values I'm talking about, service, the duty, service, just to be happy that I have taught somebody's daughter or son and they have become greater. I have researched into knowledge and I now provide solutions to our people 
I think that's the kind of values we need to get back in our people. Professor, I, we've got um, four minutes for you to deal with. I, I brought you uh, onto the show as a researcher and you've come out with a book. So by rights, we ought to discuss that book and its contents. And maybe we'll do that in the minutes to follow. But one, one last question before we take a break. And that is this idea with, again, it's a problem even in the so-called first, second, whatever world we're meant to be in, where certain thought, certain ideas are not allowed to infiltrate the campus. In other words, I could profess some kind of thinking, but you might not accept me at your university. What do you have to say about that? Because the trick that embedded within that question is that if the universities themselves are doing what the state accused them of doing in times past, then it's not that great a leap forward. Um, I don't know what issues you have in mind, but uh, I think it's easier to go back to the first uh, statement I made, that the foundations of our university are only mostly three religious bases. Yes. So, for example, if you are in a Catholic university and uh, you have to speak about gay rights, for example, or, right. abo- or abortion, yes, you will have trouble, especially if you are liberal. I understood that, Professor. Yeah. So I'm saying so, if, 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 if the universities of academia as a, and, and treated by the quote from uh, C.J. Willy Mutunga, if it's meant to be the hotbed of thought and, and radical thinking and progressive ideas, if it is self-censoring, to which university ought I to take my child or grandchild, as the case may be? I think in the whole world, universities uh, have things that you don't touch. Ah. Every university has something that you don't touch. So, uh, there are those that you... I'd have thought if somebody said, oh, I went to Harvard, I, I oh. went to Stanford, I went to Oxford and some, Cambridge. Some the idea is, you know, uh, out there, the, uh, anything goes. Not true? Not true. Not oh. true. <laughs> most, most of the universities in the West have something. It could be race. It could be religion. The Catholic has started big universities in the U.S., the, the, the Jesuits and all that. And, and you also don't talk about certain things. So it's, it's a global problem. So, so what we're saying is that, you know, the search for truth uh, has got constraints and impediments and yeah, loopholes everywhere. It has. But everywhere. we try to do the best we everywhere. can. But, but that, that's why the trick is in government universities. Public universities should be funded a bit more so that they can do better. A good place to stop just for a moment. Capital FM. Professor, you and others not in the studio with us have worked very hard to bring out a book. The title, as I mentioned earlier, is Decentralization and Inclusion in Kenya. From pre-colonial times to the first decade of devolution, what is in it? This book is exactly about what you've described: devolution and inclusion. Um, the main, the main motivation for it was to try and review what has happened ten years later. Um, Kenyans will recall that in around 2013. We had the first set of governors coming in, and we start our county government at that point. By the end of the 2022 session, we had done a decade, roughly, and it was a very, very opportune time to start reflecting and thinking about how was our decade. So that's really the preoccupation of the book, 
But as you know, we academics like to theorize, so you don't start there. You have to ask yourself, where are we coming from? So we have an entire historical issues. So we start with a conceptual framework, trying to see the two variables and how they relate. We have the history of devolution from prehistoric time, pre-colonial time to now. We have the history of marginalization from pre-colonial time to now, before now we enter the real soccer that is devolution in the last decade. Fantastic research. And dare I say, I tried to speed read it at a thousand words per second. <laughs> it seems to me that if I remember, I've got to think of a sort of mnemonic there. Uh, of the counties that you chose, uh, you chose to study events in Garissa, followed by a K for Kakamega, followed by an M for Mombasa, followed by an N for Nakuru, and an N for Narok. So there are lots of counties. You uh, focused yourself on five. The obvious question there is, does the microcosm represent the whole? Um, again, it goes to methodology, which is the things we preoccupy ourselves with as academics. We studied the whole country, but sometimes you need an in-depth analysis of a few because you can't do in-depth with 47. So you narrow down there so that you see what could come out if you if you give special focus on those few. And the few then are selected based on certain information we have. So for instance, there has been this saying that uh, the Somali community or Islamic communities will have difficulty selecting women, or that the pastoralist communities, for instance, the Maasai, would have difficulties selecting women. So you pick, pick one from each. Then we also need an urban center like Mombasa, but also that had the Islamic connections. We needed a cosmopolitan uh, county like N N Nakuru, and then we also needed a rural county like Kakamega. And, and, and we thought that if we shine our light a bit closely to those, we could get a bit more issues than if we were general across the country. So we could speak about Kenya um, generally, even from this particular study. Right. I think we could spend 10 or so minutes profitably by my very, very um, cursory understanding on a speed read. And that is that you do, as you say, as academics, go back to the past. And I would just, again, like to hear your response to some of the things that came out. When I read, for example, a reference in the early chapters to African culture, because there was a juxtaposition between African culture and how it had been assailed by colonialism and bludgeoned and all sorts of pride and integrity knocked out of it. Would you, Professor, say that simply by being, quote unquote, a black person and the color of your skin and the fact that you come from the African continent, does it mean that you share a common culture with every other black person on the continent and therefore that African culture is universal? I was a bit taken aback by a reference to African culture. That discussion is and like, again and again, I, because uh, we live in the you know the the world capital of ethnicity, so there's something not quite gelling there that I'd like to you to engage your professorial mind. There is a debate in, um, for example, religion, the field of religion, about whether we have one African religion or several religions. And, and if, you, if you picked the books, for example, by Laurent Magesa on one hand, 
and uh, JSBT on the other. The debate starts with the title itself. Is it religions or religion? Um, however, I think I'm always uh, persuaded by BT that Africans are basically com- have common culture that connects um, among them. And if you went, for example, with the things he talked about, you remember that the life of an African, the circle, the African circle, um, beginning with the living, you know, then you go to the, the living dead, you know, the dead, living dead, ancestor, you know, the unborn. If you went to any African culture, you'll find, you know, you'll find that to be the case, that we share that kind of philosophy. If you went to issues like God, Africans tend to have one God, generally, across the place. And, 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 and so you can begin to talk about one African culture. In Southern Africa, there has been a debate that I thought we should also have, because it's a concept that we have, Ubuntu. And uh, people keep saying, is it universally Africa? And I think it is. Every Africa has Utu, um, unless he has been destroyed by modernity. But, but there's a sense in Africans where we look ourselves as uh, each other's brother, each other's sister, and we want to treat community as more important than individuality. That is a common African value. And we could go on and on. I think we have a culture that was our own, but I must confess that it has really, really been messed up by the colonial epoch and recently globalization as it takes shape. We fast forward to colonialism. And uh, you had a part in writing these lines. The challenge that faced the colonialists was how, as a foreign minority race, they could rule over native majority races, but yet still extract resources and labor, not just for the settler community, but also for their economies back in Europe. Again, there's going to be what might be construed to be a blanket condemnation of colonization, but it is colonization which is in a way permitting this conversation between you and me. It is colonization and its effects that are responsible for your education. And dare I say it's colonization that's responsible for your faith. So which which or do we extricate as being positive from colonialism, if any at all? Um, there was no way colonialism was going to be a positive thing. Uh, because of its own design. And, and the quote you just read actually refers to Mahmoud Mamdani, citizen and the subject, um, where he says that um, the entire colonial enterprise was actually going to be illegitimate and it was going to be contradictory. Uh, it was going to be legitimate because it is uh, it is not based on our own liking. It is forced upon us, isn't it? But, but, but Professor, I'll take you back. It's been given the name of colonialism but in primary school, secondary school, there was the whole notion of conquest and subjugation as a continuing thread through the human story. So Hannibal, Alexander the Great, we had to learn all these names and they stuck around. The Romans went across and built these walls that can still streets that can be still seen to this day. In China, some guys conquered other people and there was the Great Wall of China. (laughs) Why this particular opprobrium for uh, Europeans with um, machine guns coming and taking over Africa to pillage. Yeah, in, in fact, I rarely look at the machine guns myself. The, the, the tragedy with the colonialism was the science of it. It was so clinical and well done. And, and, and if you read Mamdani, which is our main conceptual framework, you would notice that it talks about a finesse of late coloni- colonialism that by the time they came here, they had perfected the science. They did it quite well. 
and and I agree with you that for example colonialism had been here among my people in Kakamega there is the the kingdom there the Wanga kingdom it had terrorized people there from the Bukusu and everyone else uh, but the damage it had cannot be equated with the damage that the western colonialism had so uh, it's a, it's a matter of degrees of scale again I think, I think. again to be topical there's the, I don't know whether you go to the movies but there's the woman king coming out of hollywood with uh, the great Viola Davis talking about the kingdom of Dahomey and the Amazons and the idea that some Africans uh, took hold of other Africans and were uh, big players in the slave trade. It wasn't just the white man coming in. Africans handed over their African brothers and sisters to go into slavery. You're looking at slavery as, um, as an institution, isn't it? Um, I've always not blamed actors in an institutional setup. And I think that's what Mandela reminds us. That, 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 that look at the structure, for example, of apartheid. Um, looking for individual actors in that structure would be would be wrong, I think. Um, look at the bigger impact of this structure and the, those who were in control of it. But I still go back and, and try to draw you a bit more in what it is. I would say that for the young person of a certain age, the aspirational pride and look and desire to imitate is coming from, let us call it, the West. That is undeniable. So if this is the state of things from a certain historical period, who is to say that it won't be that way forever? Um, and that, and indeed, it may be good for it to be that way. It, it is not even predominantly the West anymore. Okay. Um, I, I'm also persuaded by Ali Mazrui's triple heritage, and I've always added plus one, where he says that if you met an African, the African is likely to be an amalgam of three civilizations, uh, his own tradition, their own tradition, then the Western and uh, Christian, you know, those came together, then the Arab and Islamization. But, and Professor, I'm, we all know that there's a, there's a whole industry out there out to rubbish uh, Mazrui and his findings. Um, uh, it's, not, it's not as if he's got a, a whole legion of followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There should be an anti-Mazrui sort of conference every year. So. I but, I, but I but I have I have watched the Africans. I've read the Africans. Yeah, I know yeah. the Africans. Yes, we're on the same ground. But please add globalization. That's what I keep adding. Plus okay. one. Plus one. Okay. Well, let, do continue your your thesis. Yes. Yeah, so, so I I meant that uh, those three civilizations have really attacked us um, uh, to the extent that the African is not what he was. Was still he's still struggling to identify himself. But in the meantime, he has to deal with globalization. And globalization has been so intense that even the Western countries are complaining. You've heard them talk about their culture being eroded. You've heard that even in France, even in America. And, and but that, just, we've got three hmm. minutes. Is it, I still want you to draw on the specific topic of, of religion. You've circled it in saying that universities have you know religious underpinnings in some instances. But the religion of faith, the national religion of faith and spirituality is Christianity, which is not indigenous, germane to the African continent from way back when. Christianity is African. Okay. Um, oh. In fact, the we can talk about the one that came later. So the, so the first wave of Christianity is actually African. We have heard about the Ethiopian monarch. Right. We have heard about our Queen of Sheba. Right. And, and, and the King Solomon. We have heard about the Orthodoxy Church, which could be older in Africa 
than in Europe. So, so how does that so, gel with animism? So, so how, how does that you know? Okay, because you're 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 sort of like um, nitpicking here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. The the thing is, uh, here we are believing in our ancestors, and you know, uh, our our spirits in the Luya tradition. You know, sort of. Contained the emboko, embulu, all these things. <laughs> okay, fine. I got it. I got it. I got it. But it's not Christianity, the, prof. It's not. If if you have been say a Catholic, you understand that we talk about ancestors praying through the saints, for example. It's very common, prevalent among the Catholics, and and and, and that's an African tradition as well. So many traditions that you see, including the Luyas you've talked about, came down from Egypt, and they had Christianity in them. And I believe that's the only reason why. When the white man came with this religion, they told him, we know about it. That one is good. We don't have a problem with it. Well, you know, one thing, Prof, that I'm going to avoid doing because we could be here for yeah. a, a month-long seminar is to continue upon the path of religion. This is a good time to take <laughs> another break. <laughs> When you look at the America's devolution, their devolution was not as perfect initially, but they had to perfect it. So it might be too harsh for us to do a comparison of our state of devolution as is now. We were betting or trying to hedge on people that who may not, all of them may not have had some kind of administrative or the right leadership credentials. Then we have ended up uh, with an assortment of leaders being involved in all shades of misappropriations. Many people have not understood devolution and uh, we failed in uh, carrying out civic education. Devolution is not ailing. What is ailing us is we have a national political leadership that does not want to give up power. The graveyard of devolution has been governors. And the second problem devolution has suffered is the iniquity between governors and MCAs in terms of the intellectual capacity. We still have a lot of functions which the constitution assigned to the county government still being performed by national government, state corporations. Right. The end result is that we are duplicating responsibilities and more so expenditures. Professor, you've heard a, a bite there from uh, the voices of the people which is perhaps a good point to bring us on to the focus of, our, of your study, of your research. Uh, listening to that sprinkling of views on devolution, uh, first of all, clear up why the, the title is decentralization. That might be worth sort of visiting for two seconds. And what do you think of what the people think? Maybe starting with the title, like you say, decentralization is a wider terminology. There's an, there's an entire spectrum, you know, ranging from federalism, Majimbo, unitary state, delegation, deconcentration, you know, all that, you know. Then devolution is one of them. Uh, but one of the strongest ones towards federalism would be devolution for me. Yeah. What else did you hear from that oh, sort uh, of... That, that's oh, the first uh, question. Would, would you, yeah. Yes, would you comment so on that? So there are many things that people are saying, and, and actually there's a point in most of them one of the things I hear is uh, interference by the national government. Uh, we, we, we acknowledge that it did. 
there were serious challenges with transition, for example, from local government and central government to revolution. There was a serious challenge. Um, there has been a problem with funding, timing of find, funding. There has been a serious problem of, uh, of the responsibilities and, uh, you know, for example, health. Where do we take it? And when we take it here, how much money do, does the money follow the function? I think that debate has been a difficult one between the governors and national government. And you remember earlier debates around that, the contestations between governors and the executive at the national level. Th- that is true, actually. There has been that problem. Corruption has been there. And, and it's not a new thing in Kenya. If we went back to the history that we talk about in our book, the nature of the colonial state was such that it could only bring about corruption. It is a foreign entity to the people. It's imposed upon the people. And so the people have learned to see the national government or the government as an enemy, as something outside them. So corruption will always be something that will wrestle. But again, I argue that uh, to wrestle devolution, the governor's corruption is easier than to wrestle the president's corruption. The governor is closer. If he marries a second wife, we know. If he builds a house, we can see. And is someone we can attack quite easily. Um, after all, he's not even the uh, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. So those concerns are there, but I think they're going to go away. Uh, if I have time, I could go on with something else that they talked about. Do, here. do, do. Yeah, 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 quality of leadership. They talked about the differences between an MCA and, and, and the governor. Um, their counties, for example, most counties actually have governors who had served as, um, as ministers. If you went to one of the counties we studied, Kakamega, Oparanya had been a planning minister at the national level. For him to come to the county to meet, I'm sorry to say this, a person who um, has been jobless um, as an MCA, there's always a, a, an imbalance between them, and the checks are, are, are unlikely to be effective. But again, my response to this would be that we need to give it time. It's not instant coffee. And, and, and if you read the quality of MCAs in the first phase, they are not the same quality as the second phase. I think we got better people began to realize that devolution is a strong force. Individuals that are talented, that have better qualifications, began to contest those seats. And we are seeing increasingly that counties are getting stronger at that level. You will see more strength as we go on. You will see even impeachments, uh, governors getting impeached or questioned on certain things as we go on in this devolution journey. So I, I, I think uh, we could just get better that, that, that we have been. But I think, like I also said, the concerns are quite legitimate. Um, I think the people can also see certain things that are true and, and, and worth of discussion. Right. I think I would not be forgiven if, I, if our slogan is ideas over individuals, elucidation over confrontation. And I call you here to talk about the merits of research. And I don't give you the opportunity to talk about the research that you've carried out. Now, question number one. Is are the fruits of your labor to be contained within academia? How can the person in the street access the contents of your book? Simple answer, I'm sure. Do you go and buy it for 5,000 shillings, which I can't, or what? This particular project we won't have to sell. Um, as soon as we are ready, there will be a link. Right. The internet and everyone that requires to download that link will be able to get it. The book is uh, 350 or thereabout pages, but we are seeing how to just pull out the, the one that has research findings. That's chapter five. And again, make it easily available to the ordinary person. Second thing is the book is donor funded. 
so we wouldn't have to sell copies. There would be a few physical copies, but a lot of them would be in on the link on our website, like I said. I know, having not a PhD, but at least a diploma in speed reading, that <laughs> your your focus, your focus, women, youth, and people constantly referred to as PWDs, people with disabilities. So in other words, you are talking about the marginalized segments of our society. And I think I came away with the conclusion that the more decentralization there is, the better it is for marginalized segments of society. And the more centralization of power, the more the marginalized suffer. So that's my conclusion to get an A-plus on this particular paper. I'd like you to tell us more about what you actually carried out research on and some of the findings within these five counties. Great, great. Um, you are right. I think the, the finding of this research is that whenever you decentralize, you include a bit more. The more you centralize, then you exclude. And we are able to make that finding because we looked at the history of devolution, of decentralization, and we found that central states are quite um, ex exclusive. They, they, they keep a few privileged in power, but they keep everyone else out. And if everyone else is out, then the ones that are most out, if there, a circle, if there are circles of inside and out, then the women, the persons with disability, are likely to be far, a distant far. So that, that is the general finding we find. However, the research was guided by three main questions. We went in to find out three things. One, whether these marginalized groups you've mentioned have been included in the last 10 years. Did they get inner, in, inside, if there's, if there's such a word? Second is whether laws were made that favor them. And third, whether programs or projects that were initiated by the counties favored them. And then and I could give you answers if, if I have the latitude to each one of them. Do, in do. summary. You're here to elucidate Thank and elaborate. You. Do. Thank you. I'll stop you. I'm mean if you get off track. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, yeah. I'm ready to bark. Yeah. Thank you. So, so on the first question, whether they were incorporated, we found that because of the structure of the constitution itself, there was a guarantee that they were going to be incorporated. Um, so if we're looking at, for example, MCA position, uh, women did poorly, for example, in the MCA position, Sometimes in the 2017, having just 98 women out of 1450 positions, you can imagine. At the ballot, they did poorly. But if you're looking at the structure of the constitution that supports that devolution, we were supposed to top up so that we have at least a third. And so every, in, in 20, 2013, 2017, we were able to top up 650 members of members of assembly, 670 670 in 2013, 650 in the, in the 2017, and eventually we get the women doing two-thirds in all the counties across board, including counties like Narok and Garissa, Wajia, that never elected a woman in that first decade. So, Which seems to suggest that this might trickle up to um, be perceived at the national level oh, yes. in, in the Senate, in the oh, National yes. Assembly. Oh, yes. We found, actually, um, I don't know, let me come to that later. We found that actually it works that way. Right. Um, so... With the person's disability, again, we found that there's now some guarantee that they can get involved. Um, the law says so, that you should nominate at least two women, two, one woman, one man, with a disability to, to, to these positions in, in the county assemblies. The tragedy there, though, is, two, 
One, that the people people with disability did poorly at the ballot for understandable reasons. They are marginalized. Um, but the worst part is that when it came to the affirmative action where we were supposed to nominate them, they were cheated out. They, they were lied to. So, for example, we have counties gazetting that they have actually a person with disability and the person doesn't have a disability. So they end up eating their slots. Um, but oh, none but <laughs> okay. <laughs> nonetheless, the design of devolution is such that you ended up having one or two, here, you know, here and there, so that uh, most counties now have at least one, and that I think that was a very good finding. Um, persons, youth, youth did well at the ballot. In fact, they did better than women at the ballot, especially male youth. They did quite well at the ballot for the MCA position, and um, and then, uh, however, women did better than them in the others. For example, if you want to get speakership, women did better. If chairing committees, women did better than the youth. But just at the ballot, the, the, the youth did better. There are other seats, like governor. Women went without in um, 2013, but they, 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 they were able to get three in 2017. And, 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 and when you analyze, and that's why I was coming to the issue you raised earlier, you find that women easily get a seat, and I think it applies to men as well, where they have had previous um, visible leadership. So, for example, you've been a cabinet secretary like Waiguru, it's easier to win the next position. That's how she becomes governor or charity Ngilu. It's easier to come from cabinet to there or deputy speaker before, like Joyce Laboso, who um, unfortunately passed on. So, so w- if we expose women or youth or persons ability earlier or prior, they're likely to get the next big position through ballot. And then I think that's what we found, that they are actually included. And again, if I would like to include the next question about the laws, whether the laws actually favored them, and, and, and it is true that we found that there were several laws across counties in the country uh, where laws had been made to include persons with disability. It could be establishing a certain fund. It could be asking that women must or youth or PWDs should compose this or that committee. And that is a replica across the country. And then the last question, which is also where we had a lot of interest, was are we seeing projects by counties that are targeted at these groups? And we found a lot and a lot. It took it took ages to analyze that. Um, counties have innovative projects on the ground, quite quite exciting that target these people. Whether it is as simple as uh, training border borders, giving them a safety instruction, helping them get a driving license, as simple as starting um, uh, heavy intensive public works. So you are making a road, but you make sure there are not machines involved, but people are putting their hands on that. Um, we found that sports had been taken seriously in some counties. You are seeing Olympics, you are seeing tournaments, including even Paralympics for persons with disability. We even now have the Isiolo Olympics, we have the Nakuru Olympics, and, and, and counties are taking this job a little bit seriously. Um, another thing that you see counties doing is business and job creation, giving greenhouses here and there, giving you capital to start a business, giving you seedlings, giving you animals, you know, there are a lot of scattered things happening on the ground, different counties taking different approaches. But I think the whole idea is that they are not being left out, they are being listened to, and initiatives are in fact being made to ensure that they are incorporated. When it comes, for example, to women, um, you might find uh, that I think some counties have done serious healthcare programs. Um, and I think the most famous was the Obamacare program, where a woman is encouraged to go to maternal health clinics. 
before and uh, after. They also are given a start pack as soon as you deliver plus some cash every month. I think that was something that should be taken uh, taken on board by the other counties and also the national government. In short, a lot of innovations are on the ground there that even the national government can learn from. I think that's one thing we found. Thank you, Prof. We're going to take our last break. Professor, yes. to rejoin us to what you've just said, um, I, I, I comment, please. One, I'm going to put under the rubric of representation. And I'm rather exercised by this idea that simply because you represent a grouping, for whatever reason, uh, you've got one leg, you've got five toes, that the mere fact that you represent them is a great leap forward in the sense that compassion and this looking after society as a whole is enhanced simply by having somebody like that in a powerful position. I would like to hear your views on what is, okay, I guess you have a role model. If you're a woman and you're a girl, uh, you can see your mummy uh, is a minister and somebody's mummy is a minister, somebody in a wheelchair is a minister. But does that necessarily guarantee that our leaders will be in the position with regard to merit? And I want to to morph that into the idea of education. If marginalized groupings were given a maximal education, if everybody whom we met who was marginalized was a Professor Stephen Hawking and was a little, you know, tabbing out whatever he wanted to say on a little machine, but he understood the mechanics of a black hole and everything. I would I would willingly say, Oh my gosh, let him be minister for physics. But the simple idea that you are marginalized ought to give you some advantage in society. Would you comment? Does well, that result in the best leadership possible? Well, that requires a philosophy. I like, I, like, I, I, like, <laughs> I like philosophy yeah. a wee bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, tell me. Yeah, yeah. that's lovely. lovely. Um, I think that uh, the, the answer is easy for me. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have your own in leadership. In fact, there are people who are not like yourself, but representing you better than yourself. However, we have a long history. And, and, and that's why I said, if you go back to a book, it gives you the entire history. We're coming from a time when people of your skin and mine were not represented. In fact, they were living in reserves, secluded in certain areas where to come out, they need a kipande. That's, that's why the kipande, that's where it began. Uh, we're coming from a time when initially, we then fought for representation and they allowed us to be represented but by white missionaries. I don't know that Kenyans know that. That uh, for a long well, time. Well, do tell them. For, yeah, for mm. a long time, it's white missionaries. I knew that, but I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> so leave the dinosaurs yeah. out and uh, appeal yeah. to the young. So mm. the, I think we need to know that, that we were represented once by people who who are missionaries, but not necessarily our race. Um, at that time, we're not even talking about women yet. We're talking about white males. And after that, we were allowed to vie, uh, you know, but then landed people, people with property. You had to show that I have a plot here. And have a house here before you could buy, and that rule was there up to the independence. People without property could not buy. Um, so when we say that we want to be represented, we mean it, because there was a time we were not, and and and, and for now it is not just about quality and not quality. It's just about even just the manifestation of it of it. Even the whole idea is what is exciting at the moment. But I think a time is going to come when we won't care that much. 
uh, because it won't be an issue. Professor, you know what? What you've just, it reminds me of again being young and studying things. And my first introduction to what my lecturers described as dialectical materialism. And uh, they said, you know, we're progressing to the idea of there was the landowner and you had the landed gentry and then there was the middle class and that came through. And then Nirvana, the golden age, would be when the masses would uh, take over the means of production and uh, then you had uh, uh, socialism uh, and then you weeded out the bad weeds and eventually I think it was communism which was the highest state of socialism mm, mm. right so my I'm now in the last the few minutes that remain to us in five minutes or so the study you've already pointed to a, a, a better future for all but what should those stages represent because we all know what happened to communism and communism state communist states they all crumbled and then went back to so many years later invading each other so what is the what is the trajectory if it's again be somewhat philosophical so many elections hence let's give it another three 15 years from now what do you want your academic searches to reveal? The answer lies in chapter two, the conceptual chapter, where my brother Humphrey Sipala talks about um, about the finis of late constitutionalism. This constitution is not coming in 1980. It's not coming in 63, remember? Those ones we dealt with them quickly. Um, the center kept them off immediately. What we are dealing with is a constitution that has benefited from history and seen everywhere we went wrong. In fact, um, I teach constitutional law, and every time I'm teaching, I'm teaching history, because for every provision you see in that constitution, they surpassed. I always give a few illustrations to my students. One of it is, the constitution simply says that uh, the president shall be sworn in in a public place between this 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. <laughs> okay, I, 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 sorry, sorry. Sorry to, giggle, sorry to giggle, but do continue. Yeah, yeah, however. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason for it, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so we yes, have we yes. tried to deal with every past problem. Exactly. Because it's coming quite late into the problem. And, and, and I foresee that this constitution might just have sealed our past problems once, in, once and for all. Um, and, and, and I foresee more women coming in. Remember, if you're looking at 2022 elections, we had seven governors. Remember, we started with zero to three to seven. If you're looking at women, we had 23, now 30 in, in National Assembly. And, and, and I expect that to go ahead, you know, and, and, and ahead and, and ahead. So we expect a very inclusive society as we move forward. Why? Because of the structure of devolution. I expect a little bit more development than you've seen in the past. I expect roads getting to your village. That tarmac, you know, that place where you go stuck usually when going to the village, this time will be tarmacked. I expect um, more inclusion of groups that uh, were not included. They will have more voice, whether it's persons' ability, whether it is the communities that are not very many in number, whether it's women. I expect a bit more voice at the center of power in the county and eventually in the national government. I expect a little bit more redistribution of wealth. Um, not just in terms of the, the three groups, but also even uh, regionally. If you're looking at the Northern Frontier District, um, there are animals dying all the time, cattle rustling in some areas in the, in, in, the, in the Rift Valley. I expect that to end, because once the governors are there and they say to their people, it will just be a matter of time before the issues begin to be addressed. 
Um, I expect also more solid leaders going to county government, taking over governorships, um, taking over MCA positions, taking over speakership. And in fact, it's likely to be the place where the next leaders will be bred. Um, you'll remember that we have depoliticized the cabinet secretary and uh, emphasized the politics of the governor and presidency. So we expect that future presidents will actually come from the, the governors. I'm not a prophet, but you, you're likely to see this happen sooner than you thought. And, and once that happens, then it means that leadership will have moved, power will have shifted from the national level to the county levels. Expect a lot of that. And I dare say um, we haven't sealed all the loopholes because next time round, from this time round, we might expect that we have more uh, constitutional guarantees on, on, on the conduct of elections. So, I mean, with judicial rulings and people wanting recounts, is the emphasis going to be on the conduct of the elections or the results that they produce? Because we did see a, an image there of one side in the last elections coming with a truck full of evidence, a whole truck. I don't know where they got the truck from, but it was full of something. I don't know quite what. But whatever they had in that truck was dismissed as hot air. So, <laughs> you're the, the lawyer. The, the, Comment on that. Again, history. I'm just not a lawyer. I'm an academic yes, lawyer. Yes, yes exactly. So, so, I want you to look at the history and look at the earliest election petitions. First, we didn't even have elections for the presidency, you remember? The president was declared uh, unopposed in Kanu and therefore the nation. There was one party. Eventually, we began to have elections around 92. And uh, we tried to have election petitions. You'll be surprised. They were all dismissed on technicalities. 92, you know. When 97, there was even no point, you know. 202. But, but, but you begin to see that we are able to get to court. And now we have a court that is dedicated to do this within, you remember? Two weeks. They are able to listen to this petition and address it. The one petition that we took, uh, you know, Kibaki took to uh, against Moi, was handled way into his term. You, ca you can't take away a commander-in-chief. But now we say we have to deal with it before he takes an oath of office. You remember? And then we have a special court that has judges of that caliber that have the independence to deal with it. And, and I think that's a plus. And, and, and the, the judges have shown in 20, 2017 that they could actually declare an election uh, nullified. Justice Maraga did that. And this time they, they said they actually showed that they could also just declare that it was valid. And right. Then, right. Fine. One, one more question before I ask your name. This idea of the absence of ideology, uh, this sort of uh, party hopping from one to the other. One of the preoccupations of your term is the negation of the imperial presidency. I seem to see signs that there could be a return to an imperial presidency. Am I wrong? I don't know what you mean by imperial presidency. <laughs> well, you you used the term in your... <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. you or somebody, so I didn't make it up. Yeah, I read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you mean is if, yeah. if shifting positions is the imperial presidency, then that, that's why I'm having a problem with it. But what I foresee here is that um, the, the the parliament... One guy rules all, the dictatorship. No, no, no. Yeah. The president has his position, yes. a, we a far weaker position than the one, say, President Moy had. Yes. Um, what is missing here, and, and remember when we talked about intellectuals, was the honor. We talked about the honor. Right. And, and as long as the MPs are still living in the past, um, then we'll be a bit slow in moving forward. Nothing stops a member of parliament from standing on their feet. They have the salary, they have the independence, they have the bodyguard, they have the car, they have the fuel to do the work they need to do on security. Since what's the last time you saw an Yeah, they get paid lots of money. That's another They're paid issue. a lot yeah, of money. A bit they more than they need. They have everything they need to check and a bit, the government. And a bit more. Yes. yes. So the problem here is not the constitution anymore, just yes. like we said earlier. Right. Okay. Jinalako Nani, what's your name in the register, sir? 
<laughs> My name is John Osogwambani. All right. What do you do? I teach at Kabarak Law School, right. where I'm also the dean of the law school. How did you decide to become an academic? You could have been a mega businessman. I, I have that passion. <laughs> I feel called. I think it's a vocation for me. Right. I am called to teach the younger people and to research and educate our society. Could I ask you to comment again to go full circle on the importance of research and how you're going to communicate your findings to government directly? Yeah. Because we've just said how wonderful and you're the watchdogs of society. Uh, how do you get the, the letter into the box? Yeah, you, you attended the launch, uh, as you said earlier, yeah. and I, I refer to the story of Joseph, isn't it? Yes. That he's able to tell the king what the dream is about. The volunteer even to sit in the committee that will deal with the hunger and all that. I think that's what academics do. Yes. They are able to reflect on society. But will uh, the president, for example, will President William Samway Ruto have a copy of this book? Make sure he gets it. He doesn't, he? It doesn't have to. Okay. Um, policy change um, is policy change. You take it to the policy actors. You take it to the influential people and eventually change will occur that way. Um, it doesn't always have to be the one at the top. Okay. Um, a lot of the changes... I thought the one at the top is misguided, doesn't know what's happening because his minions and myrmidons are not telling him what's happening. That's not true. Okay. Um, I have been researched for many years now. A lot of the things we researched and recommended from the early, early, late, early 2000s have actually been implemented. If you look at our constitution, it's actually on point with everything scholars have been saying about elections, corruption, and all those kind of things. So expect that this research will actually be implemented. Uh, we already had the Gender Commission there. They deal with this. We've been working these communities, and eventually this research will have the impact it requires. Professor, the you've persuaded me that we could talk to somebody else about some things. Maybe we've got, there's more to the youth agenda. Maybe, maybe, but for now it's 19 hours, 29 minutes and 29 seconds, and we have to stop there. Do continue to give us feedback, hopefully positive and reassuring, on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya, or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 0701-984-984. I've been talking to Professor John Osogo Ambani, Dean of the Faculty of Law, Kabarak University, Nakuru, County Editor, co-editor of a new published academic study from his own university's press. And you've been listening to John Sibiokumu on Wednesday. Thank you for doing that. Until next time. <laughs>